I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Dr. Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, the new Senior Advisor to the Chancellor and the Chief Inclusion Officer at Texas Christian University. Dr. Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado begins his new role as Senior Advisor to the Chancellor and the Chief Inclusion Officer at Texas Christian University in June. He was formerly Assistant Vice-Chancellor of Student Success at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. Jonathan is also the former President of the Latino Caucus in Political Science of the American Political Science Association. He additionally served as the director for the University of Nebraska-Omaha's Office of Latino and Latin American Studies. Jonathan earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey and his doctorate in political science from the University of Georgia. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It seems that the best place to start is perhaps looking at the future. And so the future for you is um, in Texas... I'm not entirely sure we can come around to whether or not you ever saw Texas as your future, but it is. So what is this role that you're going to and what what are you hoping to achieve? Well, this role for me represents, I think, the culmination of about the last 15 years of my life professionally. Um, I had the opportunity a few years back to direct a program at the university that, you know, for lack of a better term, was seeking to recruit young folks into the intelligence communities here in the United States, but specifically to diversify the federal workforce more than anything else. And that, you know, it resonated with me because I'm trained as a um, nuclear nonproliferation policy analyst. And what I found early in my career when I was, you know, working in the field was that I would attend these conferences, you know, Washington, D.C., and Moscow, and Mexico, and other places. And I would be the only U.S. minority, usually, in, in, a, in a crowd of 3,000 people. You know, I'm, a, I'm an intelligent fellow, but I'm not that rare an individual that there shouldn't have been, and, and you know, uh, more folks like me in the room. And it really got my wheels turning. Um, why was it that I found myself in those particular spaces and there weren't other people like me. And even though I had been active in in the profession, you know, of, of political scientists, there were still in those particular spaces, which are rarefied, but nonetheless, they were not representative of, of the society that I come from. So it was a puzzle of sorts. And and so I, I thought to myself, and you know, once that gig kind of expired. Um, what would be next for me? How could I take my my skills and my experience and leverage them to address an issue like that? An issue of people having the opportunity, you know, to work on behalf of the nation, to work on behalf of society, to make good, so to speak. And um, I fell into an opportunity at the university first to 
um, you know, assess programs. That's what I did. I do program assessment because I'm a policy analyst. And, and then I was asked if I would be interested in being the assistant vice chancellor for student success, which was ironic because I didn't know anything about student success. I'm a trained political scientist. I'm a classroom instructor. I'm a researcher. I don't know much about how, you know, we work with students. And yet at the very same time, I guess the native intellect of having worked with students for a while really was applicable in, in that environment. And, and so I fully embraced it. You know, I became a student again and learned all the ins and outs and a lot of the kind of the theoretical underpinnings of what it means to serve students in a university setting. And I think it prepared me for what I'm now going to embark upon. Um, I have been successful at the university not because I was the one that did everything, but I work with a remarkable team of people um, at UNO. Um, and it certainly positioned me well, both uh, personally and strategically, to take the next step. And so, you know, this opportunity, among others, uh, kind of appeared on the, on the horizon for me last fall. Um, I, an executive search firm came to me and said, we want you to apply for these jobs we think you're an ideal candidate. You know, I had applied for a job the year before just to kind of test the waters, and I was a finalist for it. And I was very, I was both very disappointed but encouraged that on a national level that, you know, I would have that kind of uh, um, attractiveness to other institutions. And so I did that again, and I ended up with, with two job offers and having to pull out of the third because that it was just not going to happen quick enough. Um, and it, it so happened that uh, I turned down a job in California, where I'm from, to take a job in Texas. Um, but ironically enough, what was important about the offer from TCU was that it really did allow me then additional degrees of freedom to really kind of think and, and, and to really, you know, put all my skills to, to, on the table to help them as an institution to create a strategic vision for what it looks like to be a truly inclusive university in the 21st century. That's a heavy lift. I have no illusions about what that job is going to entail, but I am over the moon about the opportunity. I have been welcomed with open arms there. I've received numerous uh, texts and emails, phone calls, invitations to have coffee with folks there. And I've been down one time. I'm going down again before I start. Um, and so it just seems that, that this opportunity is, is ripe for all kinds of interesting kind of uh, projects to launch, initiatives to be a part of, um, the extent to which I can already kind of carry forth the work that they've already done, because that was part of the attraction. The fact that they didn't call it a chief diversity officer, that they called it a chief inclusion officer, demonstrated in my mind a maturity around the thinking of what this work really does entail. You use the expression, truly inclusive university. If you're painting a vision of a mm -hmm. truly inclusive mm -hmm. university, what, what does that mean and look like? You know, I've given a lot of thought to that. And so what I would say to you and what I say to others, if, if asked that very same question, is that diversity is who we are. It's taking the accounting, you know, accounting heads, making those differentiations of identity around gender, race, ethnicity, sexual preference, you know, gender identity, all of those wonderful things. That's important. But that's just the point of departure. 
And I think for so many people, we're not there because they're not seen. I've told people repeatedly in my interactions, both here at UNO and and, and other places, because uh, it's not the only place in which I, I, I do this type of work, that most importantly, people need to be seen and then they need to be listened to. Um, that's when we can begin being inclusive. You know, so it's taking that full accounting of who's present and then take, taking very intentional efforts to make sure that they have a seat at the table, that they become indeed you know, decision makers, that they have the ability to shape policy practices wherever they may be. And then at the end of that is when you can begin to think about equity. Because equity then is an actual measure of whether or not we've achieved those things to which we aspire. That's a lot of work. Um, And so many institutions are are loath to really kind of reveal the truth uh, of what the numbers would tell them. You know, I mean, by and large, what we're, what we see in higher education is a dearth of people of color at the highest level, at the executive cabinet type level. I have an opportunity to sit in that environment now. That means a lot to me because I also know that that signals from the institution that they're serious about this. And I'm not just a quote unquote diversity person. I'm a scholar. You know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a classroom professor. Um, I'm a community activist. And so I bring all those things to the table. And I was very clear about that as I interviewed with them. I wasn't trying to impress them, but I was, what I was trying to do was to share with them those things to which I really believe to my core. And the fact is that I do this every single day, no matter where I go. There's a foundation at TCU, they've taken steps already along this pathway. So there are elements that you want to build upon and amplify and some fresh and novel approaches and initiatives that you want to introduce. Could you just talk a little bit more about yeah. what you're building on and, and perhaps yeah. what you'll try so to introduce? The, I, so one of the things that's very attractive about the position at Texas Christian University was that they have a racial reconciliation initiative. I'm not really comfortable with the word reconciliation because that means we're going back to something. We're trying to reconcile. Well, are, what, what is it that we're trying to reconcile? Are we trying to reconcile, you know, the disparate treatment of particular groups in society? Is that what we're trying to reconcile? Are we trying to kind of, you know, create a, a more effective and equitable kind of relationship? Because that's, that's a different word than reconciliation, but I truly understand, you know, and and if we paid any attention to the work that happened in South Africa around truth and reconciliation, it has deep, deep meaning. And so that for me was very attractive. Uh, the other thing is that the institution is one of, uh, of, of a few in the United States which has received HEED certification, and I think it's a higher education um, 
you know, diversity type of, of certif- certif- certificate. Um, they've been received that already for four years. They're going on their fifth year. Um, this is something that the diversity magazine uh, gives out to institutions that they believe, you know, has already kind of created that template, that foundation for carrying out the work of diversity, inclusion, and equity. I think what what's important for that is that, that that's just the beginning of the journey because you want to make sure that there's true access and then belonging. And that's the kind of things that I think that vision has to try to incorporate. Um, one of the other things that I was really um, enthralled with when I, when I spoke to the people there is that there was a real hunger and willingness to have a campus leader and to do those things. And, and that's, you know, that's intoxicating if you think about it, that people would like you to be there for that sole purpose. And the fact is that I um, report directly to the chancellor. I serve as a you know, senior advisor in, in these matters. Um, what's not to like about that opportunity? And so that is what's been you know, really exciting for me. What I'd like to do when I get there, obviously, I'm going to walk in the door, not with a sword and start chopping. I'm going to come in with a notepad. I need to listen to observe and learn before I act. That's going to be a very intentional effort on my part. Um, and I'm not a good listener. You know, I think I know everything. And so, you know, that admission alone, I think has already started to help me to have a clearer mind about what I have before me. But I do want to begin to work on very intentional efforts to break down some of the artifice that separates us, you know, knowing that at the end of the day, everybody does want the same thing for themselves. We just come to it from different perspectives. And I think that, you know, I, I, I think I have a good ability of being able to see things at a 30,000 foot level, but also keeping my feet on the ground where, where things have to happen. So how can we, you know, intentionally, strategically and sustainably do that at an institution that's open to it? That's what's, that's the beauty of this. They're open to the ideas. And one of them would be, is I want to start having people do a deeper dig on on identity and, and the manner in which it's socially constructed and break that apart but do it in a fast, in a manner that's not threatening you do it in a workshop where you're having fun where you get to highlight you know i mean i've done this here in omaha with 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 a, n- different groups and you know some a young person will tell me well i'm i'm polish and irish and i go well you know can you speak polish what, what, have you ever been to Ireland? And, and they can't tell me that. And so what, I, what I'm trying to do for them is I'm trying to kind of reveal, and I think this is important in American society today, the complexity of what it means to be a human, that we have multiple identities. They're contextual and they're situational, and there's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't make us schizophrenic. It just makes us complex humans. And I think we have this propensity to grossly oversimplify what other people are, you know, I look at you, you got an accent. Oh, must be British. Ho, ho, ho. You know, that kind of thing. And then that would be the extent of how I see you as an individual. Well, that really gives, that just gives you short shrift. And, and that, you know, what I'm trying to do is to challenge people to go beyond that comfort of that initial kind of assessment. If somebody looks at me, they go, this is, that's a big brown man, you know, um, to see me as more than that, to see me as human. The question then becomes, so once we've divested ourselves of the foolishness of the social construction of identity, then we can begin asking the question, who are you really? You know, and, and I will ask that question openly of people. So I am 
tell me what you are. And can you distill it even further and down to one word? You know, so if I were to say, okay, I'm going to take a picture of you and I want you to have your word that describes you. That's the kind of work that I want to do. I think that that, you know, it has a place, especially in an environment uh, like a college or a university where we're, what we're trying to do is to help people to become better people. I'm here to challenge how you think. I'm here to help you to refine how you think because the world is very complex and unforgiving. If I send you out there, you know, in your Pollyannish type of perspective on reality, you get what we have in American society today. People who are unwilling or unable to break out of the, you know, the strictures of their own thinking sufficiently enough to address larger problems. They get hung up on, on minutiae or things that are distractions. And, you know, and, I, and I, as a political scientist who has tried to imbue young folks with that, I kind of take some of the responsibility for that as well, that we, didn't, we weren't adamant enough about imbuing people with the importance of what it means to be civically engaged, what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner of decorum and to allow others to speak and to listen to them and to be good citizens. Because at the end of the day, that's what the foundational kind of documents of political science are about. started to answer this question about why TCU. So I, I have a sort of three-layered question. Why TCU? Why Texas? And why higher education and not, for example, a for-profit opportunity mm -hmm. or a think tank? Mm -hmm. Well, why TCU? TCU is among a small group of private institutions in this country, nominally associated with a religion, Disciples of Christ, which fairly liberal uh, on the spectrum in terms of, of where they sit in, 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 you know, on, a, uh, on the platform of, of different religions uh, is, is a good way of looking at it. But the other part of it is this, is that it is one of those institutions that attracts students from all over the country, by and large students of means, students who have aspirations of being leaders in society. And because I've spent the last 20 years working in a public institution where I've had and seen the benefits of what the educational enterprise can do for first-generation students and immigrant students, I still hadn't felt personally that I had a, an enough of a hand or an influence in helping to shape the cadre of leaders, the next generation of leaders in society. You know, it's unfortunate that uh, we, we get very, very hung up in this country on rankings and things of that nature in higher education. So to have an opportunity to work at an institution that's highly, that's considered, you know, I, it's given highly regarded uh, around the country, um, and to try to work diligently and intentionally 
to imbue them with, with what I know is, 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 you know, perhaps where we're headed as a society. I'm a child of migrant farm workers, Mexican migrant farm workers from California. But we are also very much the American story of a lot of intermarriage with folks from different backgrounds. So we've got German and Swedish and English Isles, among other things, you know, in our family. Um, it just makes my family even more diverse than it was when we walked in the door. We, like all other families, have hopes and aspirations for our children. And all of us have been ben the beneficiaries of education. We're all professionals, which is, it's, it speaks highly to the opportunities that we've been granted, but it also speaks all highly to the, you know, the stubbornness of us to not accept what was given to us and to always strive for more. And, you know, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think that's part and parcel of what we, what we hope for with people in this country. But I think this is going to present an additional challenge for me because I will have the opportunity to engage with folks who come from highly privileged backgrounds. And I'm going to be the one who's going to challenge them. So you've received numerous gifts, and many of them just by dint of the fact of where you were born. You know, you won the life lotto in some respects. What are you going to do with that? Let me challenge you in a very, very non-threatening way, but a way that I believe at the end of the day benefits everybody. Not to say that you're, what, what I'm asking you to, is to give what you've been given away, but I'm asking you to, to utilize that which you have been given to make society better. I see this as a great opportunity for me at T Texas Christian University, working with that you know cadre and echelon of folks in American society. And I would also encourage the institution to not limit itself to white upper middle class uh, children, to know that there's children like my very own who are brown upper middle class children and black upper middle class children who need to be a part of, of that next generation of leaders in American society. Let's get them on board now. Let's be a catalyst for that in society. And so I've got certainly uh, big ideas about what I'd like to accomplish, you know, and I know that there was some criticism when I got hired because, uh, you know, there was a released on Twitter feed and LinkedIn and there was some comment from an individual like, I can't believe they're paying this clown all that money, all that much money to come and do this work here. They should just be giving the money out in scholarships, to which I would say very kindly to the gentleman over a cup of coffee. Well, when I bring an additional thousand students to the university because we've opened the door and we've made it abundantly clear to everyone that we're serious about this and this is a place that they want to come, let's have another conversation after that. So I don't have any illusions about a, what, a, a, what the challenges that I'm going to face, but I also do know that, that I have the means and, and the wherewithal to make that place much more attractive and to, and to bring people to the table who will want to do those things alongside us. It didn't take more than a second For you to turn a whole world upside down Turn this big boat back around Had you been watching and waiting From some place up above, somehow knowing in this place, all these people, I'll find love. 
to know you Too happy these the troubles on your mind To walk by your side Holding your hand in mine I'll treasure that For as long as I'm allowed You're welcome What has made you proud of your time working Mm -hmm. here? I'm extremely proud of the fact that I knew when I came here as a Latino with a PhD in pocket that everybody was going to be looking at me, especially being, you know, that very outgoing, very public individual that I am involved in political science, not politics, although I did run for political office one time. But what what I felt was important as I came here was that I did indeed want to give back. I had been the beneficiary of of a remarkable education and um, had seen and done things already that I knew were were completely foreign to a lot of people who are Latino like me, but also very foreign to a lot of other people, period. You know, I mean, not many people get to travel back and forth to Cuba as many times as I have and done the things in Washington, D.C. that I've been able to do and to be and to go all over the world, kind of you know uh, the Pied Piper of of of, of a nuclear nonproliferation type life that I led before I came here, but so what I wanted to make sure that I could do here was to be an exemplar of sorts uh, for students, for my my fellow uh, faculty members at the university, and for the and for the community as a whole. I think I've been able to do that. Um, you know, I think what's important about what I have been able to do. It was really never about me, but it was about a person like me. And I always kept that idea in mind. Um, Can I be that person who sparks the interest or the idea in the mind of another individual to do something similar? Now, you know, my life has not been linear. It's been circuitous. And so I'll always tell them that, you know, I did not arrive here fully formed. This was a this is a whole bunch of experience that I've been able to cobble together to make it work for me. But I've always wanted to let people know that this was something that was within the realm of possibility. So, so to that end, I've been wildly successful here because I did create uh, with the help of some good folks here, a scholarship program for dreamers at the university of Nebraska at Omaha. We've now had over a hundred students go through the program. They all graduate with a notable exception of maybe one or two because life sometimes does interfere. But they are attorneys, they're doctors, they're engineers, they're going to be corporate leaders. And think about that. That is the truest manifestation of the American dream. These are all children of immigrants who were brought to this country uh, in a very uncertain status and that the university made space for them to come and to be successful, for us to eliminate all the noise and the obstacles and the barriers that they had been faced with in their lives. And just the sense of both, you know, um, perseverance and, and, and gratitude about that opportunity leaves me with the feeling that this is indeed why this institution is here in the state of Nebraska. 
you know, that we've created a research center on campus that speaks directly to those issues of that, of that population. So where we have been able to do economic studies that say, no, the value of immigrants is X amount of dollars every year in the state of Nebraska uh, that everyone benefits from, not just, you know, them as the, as the worker bees in, in the system. Um, the fact that we've continued to kind of create additional opportunities for people to think about how they can be more inclusive in the work that they do. So a lot of what I've also done is I get to bring wild ideas to the table. And what's important about that is that I don't necessarily have to carry the water on it. When I, I see somebody else get excited about it, I say, well, what can I do to help you to deliver on that idea? And so that's one of the other things that I do. I, I, I'm continuously thinking about things. I know sometimes I don't have the wherewithal to do it, but if I can associate myself with somebody who does and somebody that's willing to take on that work, all the better. And I think that's one of the beauties of having worked here at the, in Nebraska, having worked here in Omaha. I've encountered countless people like that in everything that I've been able to do, uh, be it serving on nonprofit or corporate boards of directors, I bring an idea. I say, hey, we, why don't we think about this? And, you know, and I just like love watching eyes light up because then it means that, that it resonates with them. But that's usually because I've taken the time to kind of assess where we're at, what we're able and willing to do. And sometimes all we need is a little push. to work out where that push came for you and maybe the best way to start is to ask what was your family background so i had a really tumultuous uh childhood um you know like i said we my parents were migrant farm workers um but my father was extremely ambitious and i think at the end of the day his the ambition ate him up but it didn't stop him he uh, went from being picking lettuce on the day that I was born to eventually, in, in a period of about 18 years, owning his own business. You know, uh, he was relatively successful. With being a business owner comes lots of pressure. And so, you know, my, my father drank a lot. And that was not, uh, was not good for anybody, himself included. Um, and so that really kind of undermined a lot of what I think his hope and ambition for himself was. But I think what was beautiful about that, though, is that he positioned us as a family in a community where he knew we were going to benefit greatly. And so, you know, I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, living in a very nice upper middle class community. Um, my friends were children of doctors and attorneys. So I was exposed to that at a very early age, in spite of the fact that, you know, um, the rest of my family was continuing to struggle in, in farm working. And, 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 but the, this is the beauty of it. Um, I, my family had so much dignity and so much love for one another that it was something that I could always fall back to. 
you know, in spite of what was going on at home, I knew that I was a loved individual. And so it really kind of grounded me, um, you know, as, and we're still trying to figure out where, how we move through all of this. You know, the only reason that I took the SAT is because my friends took it. I didn't, I didn't realize that that's something you had to study for to go to college. So I didn't do very well in it and, and it didn't set me up immediately for success but it was that exposure to things like that. It was that exposure of, of, you know, a Latino kid going to bar mitzvahs and crazy stuff like that that just opened my mind. And so, you know, I was kind of, my brother and I were both very curious individuals, and we spent all our time really trying to kind of read and understand what, well, okay, we're going to go to our bar mitzvah. Let's pull out the encyclopedia and find out what a bar mitzvah is. And that's what we would do. And my sister would walk in the room. She goes, you guys are strange. But, you know, I, but, but I think that that's kind of how we were wired. Um, the other part of that growing up was that my father was also a very stern disciplinarian. And uh, I've shared this story with a few other people recently because it, it just I was reminded of it because somebody said, well, what, what were you trying to do when you came to UNO? And, you know, so you're racking your brain. Well, what, what is it that motivated you? Um, I saw an opportunity here. I came here with the idea that no matter what happened, could I leave it better than I found it? And when I'm thinking, where the hell did that idea come from? My father used to love taking us fishing when we were little. Um, we were raised Catholic, so we'd go to church on Saturday night and get up first thing on Sunday morning and get up in the car, load all the gear up and go up, up into the mountains behind Santa Barbara to the lake and go fishing up there and love catching trout. It was just one of those moments where I think, you know, all the pressure of life just evaporated, you know, and we had a, a cranky old neighbor that we went with who we loved. And so one year my father said, I'm going to take you kids up to the Sierras so we can go fishing up there. And so we rented a, uh, a camper and we went up to Bass Lake uh, in, the, in the foothills of the Sierras, beautiful blue lake. And the first day we get there, my father hands me a rake, and this is pine trees everywhere. He goes, I don't want to see any pine needles anywhere. I go, what? We're camping. He says, I don't want to see any pine needles anywhere. And so I rake the camp ground first day. We fish. We're having a good time. Next day, the same damn thing. He hands me the rake. I go, what's going on here? And he says, I don't want to see any pine needles. You know, so it's like Mr. Miss, the guy from uh, Karate Kid, you know, Mr. Miyagi. Third day, the same thing. I'd make my brother do it that day. We're getting ready to leave the fourth day, um, and we're packing all our stuff up. My dad goes, rake the, the campground again. I start crying. I go, why am I raking the campground? He goes, because you're going to leave it better than you found it. I go, but nobody's going to care. He goes, no, you're wrong. He says, that person that comes tomorrow and takes that campground is going to go, whoa, what an incredible campground. I go, but he, he goes, he's not going to know that I did it. He goes, he doesn't have to know. He just has to be the beneficiary of it. And I thought about that. It had a really profound impact on me. And I think everywhere that I've been wired into my brain, can you do that? And it's true. In all my professional stops, I have left it better than I found it. And so you, 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 it becomes, you know, you become very selfless in that regard, and yet, ultimately, the most, re the biggest reward of all. You, you don't know, 
you, you almost have to take it as an article of faith that what you're doing is the right thing. And, and you just go. You don't look back, and sometimes people say, well, why are you doing that? I said, because I know that's what's best for everyone. And I think that I've been able to do that here in spades. It's pretty clear to me that you are very focused on this idea on making the world a better place for people around you. And inclusion is a large part of that. Not the only part, but a large part of that. It does make me wonder, as I think about my own motivations in life, is part of this drive and this focus because you can identify times in your life when that hasn't felt that way for you, when perhaps you felt excluded. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what are the stories there? Well, you know, it's, it's so important for us, especially for myself, to realize that, you know, I've been able to transverse so many different kind of, you know, domains within American society, you know, like I said, a child of migrant farm workers. So there's all kinds of, you know, identifiers attached to that. I, I'm a veteran. I, I've served in the United States Navy. I've been a public servant my entire professional life. But I've also, you know, volunteered for a lot of things. And, you know, yes, I, I have a lot of ambition to make the world a better place. It's obvious to me, I think about my, my choices professionally, you don't want to become a nuclear policy analyst unless you're trying to save humanity. And I think what's happened is that I've pared it down over time. You know, that was a good abstraction to begin with because it's, you know, it's, yeah, you're trying to save humanity, but let's worry about, you know, uh, export controls, you know, and, trans and, and illicit transshipment of nuclear materials, um, you know, to the point now where, where I'm much more concerned with the individual well-being of everybody who I come into contact with. And if, and if I can scale that at, at an institution like, like, like a college or a university, that is in itself a challenge, but it's still the same kind of thread. I'm trying to make the world a better place. You know, I'm extremely privileged today. I know that I am. I've, uh, I, I, you know, when you start paring down the things, when you realize that less than 1% of the adult population in the United States has a PhD, and then when you think about the numbers of young people like myself starting kindergarten as child of migrant farm workers, it goes down to the zero, 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 one. I mean, it's, it's really, really daunting when you think of that. But I also think, boy, what a remarkable, you know, legacy for the tenacity and the perseverance of not only me, but the people that love me and have supported me. And that includes my colleagues professionally. Um, and so I know that I have that. I know that I've got that extreme level of privilege and that because of the work that I've done, I've been able to see things and experience things that most people in their lives will never get the opportunity to do. And so knowing that, I guess I feel compelled to push boundaries to make sure that this is something that's available to others. I didn't know you were in the Navy, and I'm yeah. wondering what, what's the story there I was 18 years old, and, and I didn't see any future with living in an alcoholic household. I, I, my, my sister says now that you were very brave to take that step, you know, but I, I literally walked away from, uh, I was set to go to a college, but I, my father was going to control all the purse strings, and, and I just didn't have a very good relationship with him, and so I made a choice to go 
far, far away. And every opportunity that I got, I went to get as far away from home as possible. You know, I could have been stationed on the West Coast. I chose to go to the East Coast. You know, but it, then that, the eye-opener was that I got to read all kinds of great books as I was traveling all over the world. You know, Africa, Europe, the Middle East. I, I mean, you know, the Caribbean, up and down the East Coast. I mean, what an education. So when I came back to California at the age of 21, you know, I see things differently and didn't really find my footing there for um, for maybe for about six or seven years because it was just like, you know, I, I thought people were silly. You know, I've seen the real world. You guys don't know what you're talking about. I mean, and, you know, it's not to denigrate or, or diminish the life that I had in California, but it's so darn provincial at the end of the day. I didn't even realize that, you know. So after I'm in college, I'm going, whoa, this is really, this is a very kind of singular view of humanity here, you know, and, and so I've brought all those things to the table as I've tried to work with folks in, in education. And I've lived all over the country. I've lived in the South. I've, I've lived in California here in the Midwest, and now I'm going to Texas. And so I'm not, I'm not, you know, that doesn't scare me at all. It's just another part of the adventure, part of the journey. have great breadth of awareness of, of what is happening to all of humankind on the planet and not least around nuclear non-proliferation. I want to ask your opinion on what is happening in the world. And so you mentioned going to Cuba a lot and I, I feel like it's around 40 plus times you've been to Cuba, but um, there's also North Korea and nuclear weapons, there's Iran and there's now Ukraine and there's discussion here about, uh, even in the Omaha World Herald, about um, baby nukes. So I'm really curious about how you see the world today. Well, you know, I, I am deeply disturbed. Um, I, I think it's almost uh, irresponsible on the part of, of military officials in this country to articulate and to voice you know, the potential use of, of battlefield nuclear weapons. These are weapons on the scale of Hiroshima. So, you know, the destructive force is, is, is still there. You know, utilizing the word baby is, is such a, it's, it's actually, it's disturbing from, from my perspective. Um, and, and what, but, but what this also points out to me is that in spite of, a lot of effort by a lot of people all over the planet. I mean, and I've attended conferences where where everybody in the room was adamant uh, about, you know, acknowledging the destructive capability of nuclear weapons and, and, and the sanctity of human life. And we're trying to balance those things, you know. And um, the part that's that's hard to kind of grasp is that Conventional weapons today have have such a destructive force. I mean, the utilization of hypersonic uh, weapons that you know on the part of the Russians is is a crime against humanity, 
and and so you know it always seems to be this 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 escalation and what's unfortunate about where we're at today is we stopped teaching people about deterrence theory about 30 years ago because we thought that we were past that we thought with the end of the cold war that we weren't going to have to visit these particular ideas today and and it's interesting that you know in in higher ed and in you know the think tank world that i used to you know hang out in years ago that we're having these discussions today again you know so what could have possibly deterred you know vladimir putin from engaging what he's in what he has done i would say that the nuclear clock is probably a little bit closer to 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 midnight than it has been in some time you know the bulletin of atomic scientists has always published that you know it falls back falls forward but the presence of nuclear weapons uh, will continue to be a pox on society and humanity until they're completely eliminated and yet it is the coin of the realm it has this duality in our society that is almost inescapable you know the genie is out of the bottle um can we ever get it back in I know that people have been trying now for, you know, since the end of World War II to do that. I pray, <laughs> I hope, I wish that we will figure out some means of, of minimizing that possibility, but we're there. What is it that makes you hopeful? And I asked this question broadly, of course, but you said earlier you remarked upon the complexity of being human and what is it to be human? You know, how do you keep a level head and stay hopeful about the future? The young people I get to work with every day, you know, I'm continuously surprised um, and not at, at the ambitions that they have for themselves, the things that they bring to the table, you know, um, I used to make a joke about it all the time in class. I would say that, you know, I'm not here to have you engage in rote memorization of anything. I says, because creativity is everything. Anything else is janitorial. And then I would back off of it. Okay, oh my God, okay, I didn't call you all janitors, but, you know. And that's just, it's one of those quotes I saw written on a wall in a rock club years and years ago. But it stuck with me because, I, it, you know, um, I, I think we have to continue to implore people to be creative, to use their imaginations, to free their minds, to see the world in a different way. And I'm, like I said, I'm always encouraged by the young folks I get to work with continuously surprising me. And like I said earlier, it's this article of faith that I don't really have any expectations other than the expectations I place upon myself to treat them with respect and dignity, to see them, to let them know that they're being seen, that they're being listened to, that I'm encouraging them to, to you know, move forward. And what's great about that is you'll get a gentle reminder from time to time that sometimes that does come to fruition. And, and I'll share one more little story with you here. So not too long ago, I received an award in the community for, you know, my my. my community activism, super happy to have received it. It was just made me feel really good that people could see that I'd been doing that. And so at the end of the evening, I'm, I'm talking to some folks, and they're coming up and congratulating me. And a young man walks up. They don't recognize him, but he's got a card in his hand and a bag behind him. And um, he says, you don't remember me? And I said, no, I don't. 
And he said, well, I took a class with you in 2006 because you were the guy that goes to Cuba and I wanted to talk to the guy that met Fidel Castro, you know. I said, well, how did that go? He says, well, you gave me the first exam and I got a D on it. But you wrote in big letters, come see me. And I don't remember this still. I'm racking my brain. I don't remember any of this. And I go, well, what happened? He said, well, I came to your office and you told me that my answers were right, but my writing was horrendous. And then I explained to you that I was an immigrant from Pakistan. I'd only been in the United States like three years. And you said, well, come back to my office every week for office hours and I will help you with your writing. And I go, did you come back? He said, yes, I did. And then he says, so what happened? He goes, I got a B minus in your course. I said, well, that's pretty darn good to go from a D to a B minus, you know. He goes, but that's not the end of the story. I want to tell you that I just finished my doctorate. And there it is. That's what I've been pining for my whole life. I think, you know, that having those types of reminders from an individual who I, all I did was show a little bit of empathy and compassion for wasn't a lot. It was a part of the job. It's something that I do every single day. And at the end, you know, um, he's going to do remarkable things with that. And he is going to pay it forward. And so if that is just an example of what I've been able to accomplish in my time here, I feel really good about Omaha, Nebraska. I feel good about the future, about, you know, I was at an event the other night for UNO Latino alumni. And to see the number of folks who I know are going to gravitate up toward the executive level of the companies and corporations here in the community, that's transformational. That's what I dreamed about. That's what I hoped for. And so that's what keeps me going, knowing that if we can just have, you know, I mean, yeah, I would love to see whole squadrons of folks like that going out into the world. But I know that those individuals are going to have a profound impact, not only in the lives of the people who they love, their immediate families, but the rest of the community and society beyond. My guest today has been Dr. Jonathan Benjamin Alvarado, the new senior advisor to the Chancellor and the Chief Inclusion Officer at Texas Christian University. Jonathan, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been for me to spend not just this morning with you, but also uh, the time that we've known each other in the community. And it is, for Omaha, our loss, a wonderful gain for TCU and what you're going to achieve for the students there. So uh, thanks. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for the invitation. I thoroughly enjoyed it. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at the website livesradioshow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Lives Radio Show. The music playing in and playing out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. 
Join me next week for more conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. Thank you.